Hey guys, today's episode of Reality Bites is brought to you by The Bold Type. It's a new series from Freeform, premiering July 11th. It's inspired by the women of Cosmo. I got to see the pilot, which was awesome. It follows three 20-something ladies as they try to make their mark um, and move up in the magazine world. Those actresses are lovely. And there's Jan from The Office. Melora Hardin plays their boss, and it's just thrilling. She's my favorite actress ever. So I hope you guys tune in. I know I will be to The Bold Type. Series premiere July 11th. It's going to be on Tuesdays at 9, 8 central on Freeform. And now for Reality Bites. You guys, welcome to Reality Bites, a podcast about sex, love, relationships, and dating in the digital age. I'm Courtney Kosak, and I am here with guest host Steve Hernandez. Good to be here. My fave. (laughs) And we are, today, we have a great interview with Dr. Anna Aerosmith. Um, you have a PhD in masculinities? Yeah, gender studies, specifically <laughs> masculinities. I, oh yeah, you can major, just major in masculinities? Um, well, when you do a PhD, you just got a oh, subject that's your that emphasis. you research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's you tell them. <laughs> okay, so I researched men, um, heterosexual men, on their experiences of female power in dating relationships. So uh, I did lots of different subjects. I did stuff like the power of female beauty, also the com- commercial use of female beauty, and I did um, female physical power, um, like a, abusive, like uh, a power, but also um, sexual uh, sexual abuse, but also sexual attractiveness and stuff like this. I basically just interviewed men about how um, all that, all of the stuff that you know, from a male perspective, the dating world, really, yeah, and how also how they relate to other men as well what we call homosociality. I looked at kind of how that was set up and how they understood other men. Like, did they really know them as well as we, uh, you know, lots of feminists think they kind of do. Oh, all this stuff <laughs> so, is so fascinating. Yeah, you said about five things right now. I know. <laughs> now, uh, you did the study in England. Yeah. Do you think there's a big difference between uh, English men and uh, American men? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you, you'd really have to look into it. I mean, I, a lot of the stuff I was reading, obviously, is very international. Uh-huh. And a lot of it based in sociology. So there are people like Professor Eric Anderson, who's written a lot about it from American point of view, and Kimmel and um, Connell, all written American. So you really can't, although my studies, my study, um, it was very in-depth, like long, t- long interviews, you know, and um, small cluster, it was 30 men. Um yeah, you can't really sort of separate them that neatly. I think uh, they, I think some people would say that uh, there are more. There's more of an inclusive, what they call inclusive masculinity, which is kind of the softer end. If you think of masculinity um, as in the harder historic mm-hmm. um, kind of John Wayne's type, you know, Schwarzenegger kind of like this kind of macho thing, in, and then up to more recently inclusive. And inclusive kind of means that they include women and gay men. There's less homophobia. There's less fear of being homosexualized, a homohysteria, as they call it, which is the fear of being accused of being mm-hmm. homosexual, um, which kind of like went massive in the 80s with AIDS and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so, so after that, there's kind of more relaxation about being called sort of a, more feminine and it's a lot less of an insult and stuff like this. 
I guess you might say there are pockets. I think California, you've got a lot of inclusive men. Yeah. But I don't know if so much in Texas, for instance. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, but no, it'd be I, interesting I to see. Yeah, I was telling you as a stand-up, I have, um, I have jokes that I know... That, that could be queer and they, they tend to be queer and, and I've, I've experimented too and I have no problem with any of that stuff but I also know that I know my audience and when I go down to San Diego I don't do that stuff too much if I'm getting paid if, if I'm not getting paid I do whatever <laughs> I want to do but if I'm getting paid and my job's there to make everyone laugh I know okay we got to take that out and take that out because uh, people do not like it yeah, yeah. it's interesting isn't yeah. it pockets of it and if you get on the kind of liberal um, online space you can kind of think, especially anything around sort of Jezebel and all those kind of uh-huh. big names kind of websites, you can kind of think that the world's much more liberal than it actually is. Right. Um, and yeah, that's one, you can learn that uh, in lots of different ways negatively, yeah. But that, so yeah, after, in like the 90s, people started using the term metrosexual that mm-hmm. wasn't like, you know, that wasn't like insulting or, it seems like, yeah, there's just all over the country seems like a push towards... Well, I have, I have a really interesting experience because I, I bartend in West Covina, which is about 20 miles that way. It's the suburbs, but it feels like middle America in a lot of ways, but I live in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I go back and forth all the time uh, and I hear men talking in both places and it's still very different. Things are changing over there. Mm-hmm. You can joke about a guy being gay and they like laugh and they're not so upset about it, but... Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it's changing all the time. What do you think that, uh, what was the, the biggest surprise for you overall in the study? That you went in thinking the one way, but you've changed completely. Uh, I think the fact that I had so much more empathy for men, actually. Because I started, the reason why I started doing the study was that I was kind of frustrated with feminist literature and the stuff that I'd been taught in my master's and I'd been reading um, that female power was kind of ignored. So this is a debate that happens between second and third wave of feminisms in the 90s, right? So mm-hmm. you get third wave um, younger women that start sort of saying, well, it's like Sex in the City and um, what's that lawyer? Ali McBeal and all this sort of <laughs> post-feminism stuff in the 90s start saying, oh, we kind of don't need feminism anymore and we're kind of all powerful and stuff like this. That's kind of like one extreme and the other is that the previous second wave, which is like 1960 to 1990, where it's both mostly focused on female victimhood. So it's kind of like, you know, women mm. are being, you know, la- lacking equality in lots of ways and, you know, they're abused and stuff like this. Um, so they're kind of like the two polar things and, and I was kind of, um, saying we need to be talking to men we need to be interviewing men to get the other side of this uh-huh. story it really doesn't make any sense if you think of any kind of research you do you don't do 50% of the data like if you've got something <laughs> that is relevant to two sets of people you need to be talking to both sets of people to get a really rounded um, idea of it and I think the thing is I would definitely historically have called myself feminist and I was frustrated with this kind of like think power because I'd already done that with pornography. Like I was anti-porn once and I embraced my own sexuality and I realised that it was a very disempowered position to keep complaining about men's freedoms in porn. What I needed to do was go out there and start making stuff from my perspective or for women. And that is actually, it was kind of like a Nietzschean move from slave mentality uh-huh. to master mentality where I just actually started to take control of things. So I kind of made that move historically anyway. And then, and feminists were, you know, very split. There's very pro-porn feminists, so I'm not denying that at all. But there's always been this historic split between the two. And I kind of found that, again, I was just like, I don't want to hear 
that, you know, I'm the most disempowered person, especially as a white person and a middle class person, right? Right. Um, you know, I am not the furthest down the, the you know, the totem pole by any means um, in terms of sort of bodily luck, you know, what you're born into. And, um, and I really wanted to talk about sort of female power. And I really felt that we had to... Um, kind of the interviewing men was just about getting data and then I was kind of rearranging feminism if you like but actually what I ended up realizing is that I had much more empathy for men we have much more in common with them than we think we have uh-huh. um, lots of the problems they face are stuff that women face but men aren't able to say it because of this need to have this uh, performance of you know po- um, stronger masculinity and we don't allow men um, to sort of show insecurities and stuff like this and the point is that um, men do that to perform to other men, which we've already acknowledged, which is kind of like they don't want to be beaten up by other men. They want to win. They want to win the girl. They want to win the car and everything like that. Feminism had no real problem with that. But um, what I added to the picture was that men perform for women a lot. And they, they do it. And women have inherently there a power that is not being properly acknowledged. And... Um, and it was sort of the things where, you know, I wanted to find out how much kind of what we'd call misogynistic behaviour from men was actually defensive as opposed to offen- just purely offensive. You know, offence being the best form of defence in, in a sense. Uh-huh. And I kind of wanted to unpack that. And so rounding that quickly up, what I came out with at the end was actually changing from calling myself a feminist to calling myself what's known as post-structuralist, which is the kind of queer oh, history. Oh, I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's it's saying that, um, uh, that so post-after uh, structuralist structure, so the structure of male fe- or men and women, and going post beyond that. So oh. basically you can be a masculine person or a feminine person, you might be a man or a woman, but they're not necessarily tied. So you've always had feminine men and you've always had masculine women to a certain extent within constraints. Women have had less freedoms um, historically. Um, and so the point is to actually start looking back and looking at traits of people, the way people behave and stuff like this, and the freedom of the future to you know open up the possibility that people would choose how they perform their gender in a really fluid way. And we allow people, you know, hopefully in the future to dress and behave and take on job roles and stuff, which, you know, not necessarily linked to the physical reality that they were born into at all. And it's not really about transgender or, you know, intersex or anything like that, although that's kind of linked in a way. But you can be cissexual and just be, yeah, I'm not, um, you know, I'm much more masculine than, you know, I, I was finding a lot of things that I was reading about men. And this is the other thing, the history of feminism. I was kind of reading about woman, quote unquote, never really recognizing myself in it. Yes, I totally relate to that. And and finding actually that the stuff that men were being said to do, um, I actually kind of understood why they were doing that and stuff like this. And then I realized I'm actually quite a masculine woman. That's why. A lot of what you're saying, the modern feminists, there must be a lot that are upset with what you're saying, right? There's something, it's the audience is split. This is the thing, right? For, I, people put a lot of pressure on feminists to suddenly, we're meant to all agree, right? And uh-huh. that's part, kind of part of the sexist world that we live in. You wouldn't expect all men to agree. 
right? You never get all men on a consensus about anything, not even not even football or something. Like that. <laughs> no, as basic as that. Um, so you know, I don't expect that. There's always been a difference, different camps, and that's cool. That's just like any other politics. You got left, you got right, you got central, and everything in between. So I'm liberal. I'm central grounds, right? In England, that means central grounds. My background. Um, so yeah, I, I declare that first, you know, that's my, my kind of boundaries. I, go on. It's so funny that you were, you were like, no men perform for women all the time. My boyfriend in the car today, we were like, he was like, I don't, I don't need to do that to, to try to get chicks anymore. He's like, I, I have you. And then he was, I was like, why would you ever, we were talking about like a business thing. And I was like, why would you ever do that to get chicks? And he's like, men do everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. to get chicks. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's as, it's as simple as that too. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it is hard to be a man, right? I mean, it's so funny because I can't say that stuff to online. I, I really would never write that it's hard in any way to be a man, but I, I don't mind talking about it in conversation because we're people and we're looking at each other face to face. But um, yeah, we. Uh, I think there's a lot of men that are just lost right now mm. because we had a way that we were doing things mm-hmm. that I, I think a lot of times men thought it, it was okay for everybody. Like, uh, are you aware of the hashtag yes all women thing that happened yeah. a couple years ago? I mean, that really opened my eyes to a lot of ways of thinking that I never thought about. Really? I had just never thought. I'm telling you, it changed my life that I had never thought about certain things from a woman's perspective. Like what? Um, like what what uh, what rape can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that sometimes maybe a woman will, would have sex with a man because she was scared mm-hmm. to say no. Like that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Like I had never even thought of that being rape or that maybe then at that point under that definition. You know that, what's his name? They're doing the trial at the moment with Bill Cosby. Cosby. Yeah. And the, the audience, sorry, the audience, the um, jurors can't even decide on the definition of rape. And he was saying, there's a, there's a, an article out at the moment saying, I agree with, I, I agree with Bill Cosby because he's actually gone on record and said, yeah, I raped them. You know, he's kind of, in the, as many words, he's gone on record and said, Yes, I drugged them. Yes, I thought I knew this was going to make them easier to sleep with. No, they weren't communicative. I never said they were during the thing. And so he's actually kind of, and yet the jury and everyone else is going, oh, we need to deliberate a bit on this. It's like if you're drugging somebody, (laughs) you're drugging somebody in order to get them to have sex with you, that is not consent like by any means. That ought to be easy. It's not he he said, she said. It's a, no, you're drugging someone. Why would you feel the need to drug someone unless you wanted to do something that they didn't yeah. want to do? Yeah, but I, you know, I think he used to make, he had jokes about that, mm. about giving women Spanish flying and everything. Oh, yeah. So yes. that's what, that, it has yeah. to do with what we're talking about right now. The the definition of things are evolving. Mm-hmm. I know right now we say, God, that sounds crazy. That's straight up rape. But if he was joking about it and telling his friends about it at the time and he had the power of money and power and he thought that everyone was okay with it and he never heard any differently, that's what I'm talking about. The same is um, in the 70s with uh, Jim, Jimmy Savile where actually he went in his book, he was a, a television Jimmy? He was a television pre- uh, presenter where the BBC had a, a show called Jim Will Fix It where they sent young children, underage children, you know, anything up to the age oh, of God. 16 to go on this programme and Jim Will Fix It, he made them go and meet Duran Duran or whatever. And um, and each week it'll be something else. But in his diary in the 70s, he writes, oh, I sent the parents off to so-and-so and I took the young girl back to my trailer 
FNAF, FNAF, or laugh, laugh, or something like that. He write, he kind of hints, and he was an absolute mass paedophile. And the BBC was setting this up, and the question is, did they know about it? And stuff like this. But the point is that he could actually write that in his autobiography. And I kind of teach this with young people today, is not to make the mistake of what we call presentism, which is reading history backwards yes. with our, with our um, eyes now. Because in the 70s, until women, and, and it was feminists, actually brought up the idea of paedophilia, you know, paedophilia and they were doing it in the context of you know patriarchy has been using my body sexually even when I was a child my you know whoever was using my body sexually so it actually even wasn't linked in a, a you know a youth kind of older versus way it was just a, a continuation of women's kind of life and um so uh, and then later on it kind of is like children because boys come out and the same thing's happening to them and it's not really about gender it's about age and and the inability to consent and stuff and so this gets moved on but but in the 60s and 70s this was the, the discourses as we would call them discourses weren't there you know you yeah. can't know and like with the and this is how we are with men as well around violence at the moment um and i'm not saying you know numerically it's in the same level as women's violence but my points are when i'm writing it is that um i had a friend for instance and he he says to me um he was just about to get married for the second time and he said oh this time I'm actually really looking forward to getting married i really want to well, the last time i didn't i said well why did you get married the first time <laughs> and he said because i was scared of her he said i was a young man and she was physically abusive and he said something really interesting he said if i were a woman it'd be a classic case of a battered wife uh, and what he was saying is kind of if I were he had no way of saying we have you know any understanding what a battered husband is and um he had to kind of borrow that term from women you know and um what's important about that is two things one he's not going to have structural um until he's labeled as a victim he's not going to have structural help in the term of like you know getting his children you know, ownership of his children when his his wife, who used to sort of beat him, and she used to turn it, he used to just turn his back and wait for it. She used to beat him on the back, and she wait for it to pass. Um, so she was physically abusive, um, but um, he has no way of kind of getting structural support. In that, you know, there are no um, support centres for men and stuff. Very little um of any thing and getting his kids out of there but secondly he doesn't get to kind of draw the line of what's a kind of tumultuous relationship and what is actually abusive whereas women have been encouraged to sort of mm -hmm. take on the um label of victimhood and we have owned it and i think the the trouble is the only people doing that now are men's rights activists online and they are as I always say, there are very good points that, um, you know, we can talk about men's rights, but they're always the worst people to make the point. Like if only someone so decent would make the point. Because I go around and I see the conferences and I see people who are campaigning for sort of young fathers groups and stuff like this, who are reasonable, nice men who are just talking about, yeah, I was in a relationship for years and she beat me up and stuff like this. And, um, or, you know, I, I didn't get access to my children and stuff like this. And it's, you know, or suicide rates or rape in jail. We don't even talk about these things in, in society. So there are decent people out there. It's just the ones that shout the loudest and get all the press are the awful ones, the, the trolls. And it's a real shame because we really actually do need to start talking about men's, free, you know, their men's um, role in society and start seeing, and this is the post-structuralist thing again, 
I'm very much about seeing gender in between men and women. And it's a kind of like a mirrored thing, you know, with sort of smoke and mirrors. And we kind of perform for each other and for our own sex as well. And we have to kind of start mapping that area out and see how each other um, compares and how we can kind of like teach each other about, you know, ourselves and our positions. But, we but... make a lot of assumptions about men, but we don't actually listen to them and there there's like not a lot of safe places for guys to talk about this it's certainly not online mm-hmm. i have a lot of strong female friends that are feminists and everything i uh i went to the library uh i don't know this was a couple months ago i went to the library and uh you could tell that people are afraid of me because anytime like a man is kind of near kids they automatically assume that <laughs> you're a pedophile it's just a, yeah it's and a i said i said it some, used to be that in the 70s yeah, really oh yeah, yeah and i said i made a joke about it online but it was also like geez man it would be nice to not because you feel like yeah. being near kids you feel like a pedophile mm. uh-huh. just being near them if you don't know the kids you're made to feel that way that you're maybe you're a pedophile and i know I was like, that's sad, and I don't. It's like really sad. It's that really way. bad for kids. Really bad for kids, and it's really bad for all of us. And this is why I mean, we, we're gonna need to talk about like how we work as a society and gender, not just focusing on women. And this is a good example because when I grew up, um, primary school, which is what you have, go to to age eleven, there were lots of male teachers. Right? It was pretty split. Okay, it's probably about forty percent male. I think now um, it's hardly any men are in a teaching at that age. It's all women. And this is really bad for how we teach children uh-huh. um, because a lot of resentment um, that young boys harbour against women is brought up at the young age where the women are completely in control. Like you've got your mother at home. If you have these very gendered split areas, you, you're only kind of you know, root out of that is to kind of get angry at women per se. You know, this is kind of, kind of does that. Um, and if you've got teachers at school and everyone, you need to be learning that those jobs are not gender re- relevant. Yeah. You know, that you have, you might have a man looking after you at home. You might have a woman. You might have a man teaching you at school. You might have a woman. And actually that authority figure could be anyone and any race and anything. So let's just kind of like see it as, an, you know, as, as that. And it's, it's, bad, it's sort of bad to kind of harbour. And, you know, again and again, you know, women are feeling that they have to take um, care of the kids. And men think that women have to take care of the kids a lot still. That was mm-hmm. one of my findings was that the men were kind of feeling sorry for women having a dent in their career and, you know, not earning enough money after. Because there's a massive drop when you have a child. That's when mm-hmm. real inequality in wages happens. And men would have sympathy for that. Um, you know, they would either kind of either have sympathy for that or they would blame, well, say, well, you kind of have both to the women, right? But none of it, nobody out of all the men that I spoke to, none of them said, yeah, well, I should be doing my half to that. You know, I should be looking after ah. the kids or men should be looking after kids. And, and it, there was no mention of that, which is kind of really sad because I think there was more of that kind of talk in the 80s when I was growing up. And some things have kind of like ebbed backwards. And it's but kind think of... about think about the the two things we just talked about right now. They're directly tied together. And nobody talks about that other one. That men are made to feel like maybe they might be pedophiles yeah. if they're around children. So then they think, oh, I shouldn't be taking care of kids. These are good regular guys that yeah, totally. don't have a pedophilic instinct at yeah. all. But I, I'm telling you, as me, so that's what, when I was say, talking about it not being a safe place, I wrote something about that on Facebook, and I had two of my close female friends who I love them and they love me. And they said, oh, real tough to be a man. And I was just like, what do you, what do you mean? This is a real thing that I'm really feeling. Yeah. And I'm not comparing my 
uh, struggle with your struggle or anything like that. But it's like they're they're not having it. They they almost don't want to cop. They don't. It's the both the things you're talking about. They don't want to cop to the fact that it's it might be pretty hard to be a man right now, especially how in flux our society is. Totally. And they don't want to cop to the power that they have either. Mm-hmm. They want. They almost kind of seem to bask in that victim. Let's hood. talk about the female power. Like, mm-hmm. what did you? What were your findings on that related to masculinity? Well, there was lots of things. One of my main findings, and this is what I'd say to your friend was. That when men experience female power, and it happens in a lot of different ways, where it's female beauty or um, uh, there's a classic. Uh, Let's talk about beauty. <laughs> well, can, can I just go on to yeah, the, yeah. There, there's one study that I read and it, it was labeled really well. It's called I'm Not a Victim, She's an Abuser, right? And it was a woman um, had done this uh, research on men who had had restraining orders taken out against their female partner, right? Uh. And. Um, those men, and she looked at the words, how they described what had happened and stuff like this. And what they do is they focus on female culpability. So they'll talk about she's bad, she's doing this, she's evil, she's this, that and the other. Nothing to do with victimhood. So that's, and I think if you looked at women's kind of uh, experiences of, of violence, there would be, yes, he's bad, but it would also be kind of like, and I'm victim and he's made me feel weak and I feel this, I've got no self-esteem. There would be that kind of other side to it that's filled it, not so with men. And there's just this kind of, and it's kind of like an anger that's fueled at and a focus on female culpability. So that was a study of, that I found also men when I talked about violence and stuff like this. You'd ask them sort of, and, and I was talking about talking to men who'd been, sta- there was one guy who'd been stabbed twice. There was another guy who had been um, knocked out with his helmet, uh-huh. um, his bike helmet and knocked out and blacked out and stuff like this. So there was some quite sort of serious and, um, you know, stuff. And, and I would sort of talk about how, are you scared of women? And they'd kind of go, oh, no, 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 no. And then they would talk constantly about sort of the, the, the female guilt and doing these bad things. And, you know, either they are saying, oh, well, I feel physically big enough that I don't actually feel threatened by it. That's, you know, that's a possibility. But the other possibility is that the, the in, in order to look successfully masculine, they aren't actually able to say that in our society, that they do feel vulnerable and concerned. Um, and also, you know, they have to, um, they won't feel, constantly men kept saying, if I say things like that or whatever, women won't find me attractive. So um, it's kind of, this is why it's interlinked. This is why you've got, to, you've got to look at it. So it's kind of repressive and it can be absolutely a repression. Um, there's a thing called normative alexithmia, which is where you actually don't feel the feelings anymore. So the only, if you're not allowed to show um, all of the kind of negative soft feelings, um, you will actually just jump to anger because that is one that is accepted. There's a small group of, you know, uh, emotions that men are allowed to feel, anger, pride, you know, pride in football, pride in a child and stuff like this. And they'll kind of just jump to that one. Sometimes they won't, they'll have the actual feeling and they won't be able to label it. Uh Other times, if it's bad enough, they actually don't even get that feeling anymore. And they just jump to anger. Um, And so this is why kind of the link to, that's why it's so linked to sexism. And that's why you have to look at men's motivations and realities in order to stop them being bad to women, because this is a massive, in my opinion, it's only a small study and it needs kind of like doing in, in a larger scale. But, you know, there is for me, for my mind, a definite link that men won't, don't have the ability to talk about stuff. And so they blame women and they, they blame, for instance, um, 
with the female beauty thing, there were very there's a lot of anger around commercialization of female beauty. So there were being sold products and stuff and videos and stuff, which if you learn feminist film theory, like the Laura Mulvey stuff that I was taught when I was doing film, um, you know, when the men are supposed to be the sated mass audience that everything's kind of written for so if you've got a sexy woman upstate on stage she is performing ultimately even if it is for women for the male gaze right and I was talking to these men and they weren't feeling at all sated they didn't think it was for them I showed them Beyonce's um all the single ladies and um none of them I asked them questions like who is this made for um, who's the audience for this? And they'd come out with all sorts of answers. Most of them thought it was for women, um, but none of them thought it was for men. And none of them felt sated, and a lot of men had a lot of anger about how their sexual kind of attraction to women is being used to pull them to buy things that uh, and to experience kind of commercial worlds that they didn't actually properly... Um, uh, well, they didn't really sort of adhere to it. They didn't really like it, but they also didn't really see themselves in it. They might, they kind of felt attracted to stuff, and then they didn't have the words for it. It was a weird kind of semi-space. And I in- don't even understand what is that. What is that feel? Because they are actually saying that they are attracted in a way, but resentful of it. Is that people what it is? People don't like to get manipulated. Yeah, it was not. It's it was just generally it, uh, it was, a, and there was a real stark difference between commercial use of beauty and in their own lives. They didn't blame women, individual women. It was the commercial side of it that they were angry at. Um, and the only thing they did with uh, women's, if they felt that she had power, they responded sometimes with nonchalance. Um, they might kind of list in a lot the woman's legs in a long list of stuff in the video and kind of like minimize it and stuff. Other times it would be, um, I'll tell you what was really, really nice to read actually and to find that a lot of men liked different types of body types. Mm. They didn't necessarily want the kind of stereotypical beauty, you know, the slim kind of woman woman that kind of women think that men do. And a lot, what was interesting about that is um, they felt that other men did want that stereotype, right? So... Um, if because one of the ways that you can ask men about their ideas about masculinity per se, if you ask them about masculinity per se, they'll get, just get really abstract. So what do men like? Oh, men like X or stuff like this. And they'll come out with some sort of cliche. But if you ask them about their friends, which are kind of their uh, male versions of society, you know, the, uh-huh. they know them well enough. It's kind of like a middle ground. Um, they will start either talking in detail like that. If you ask them what kind of, women do your male friends go for they either come out with oh specifically I know my mate goes out with androgynous women my other mate goes out with um bigger women stuff like this most of them thought that their mates wanted the stereotypical uh woman right and uh, when you ask them about their own stuff they'd be saying oh well I'm a little bit different um from ev- all my mates and everybody else I like bigger women or I like older women or I like androgynous women or I like you know I haven't got a type I just like the personality um but what was interesting is pretty much all of them were saying that so all of them were saying I'm not like other men <laughs> so they didn't feel that they were kind of part of this culture uh-huh. this kind of boy you know boys mags and all this sort of thing but yet kind of they couldn't be strong enough to define themselves and be confident enough to define themselves and reject that and say that's a load of rubbish but they kind of apologized said oh I'm not quite like that I'm not your average man I'm like that and it was kind of interesting to see 
um, you know, and but it was kind of nice to know that men actually had far more a, a appreciation of variety in women's bodies and yeah. attractiveness. And when I asked them the initial question, what do you look for in what what do you find attractive in a woman? Including because I interview pickup artists as well, so ten pickup artists. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, including them, which is odd because they rate themselves in the whole of society by women's beauty in a naught to ten kind of thing. Um, but including them, they all came back and, and talked to personality traits first. Um, and you could say, "Oh, I'm a female interviewer, but I'm also a pornographer, and I also set things up in a way that makes people." I'm really saying to them at the beginning say what you want I'm not going to judge you and uh-huh. stuff like this and the language throughout the interview was solid you know you could tell when they were kind of you know deviating and being polite and when they were and you that's one of the things you look at with discourse analysis uh-huh. so um yeah so I you know have a lot of sort of faith in in kind of what they were saying it was actually I think men are harder uh, sorry women are harder on women's bodies than men are Absolutely. oh I totally believe that D- Steve does this ring true for for you, like, would you make an exception like that if she was asking you those questions? Oh, no. I mean, just the fact that, yeah, you're a pornographer as well. I, I know. I mean, just I knew coming over to the interview that I could be open and say things mm-hmm. that I wouldn't just. So, yeah, I, I think. But but, if, but in qualifying, like a, if she was asking you about what you're attracted to or whatever. Oh, yeah, you... but I don't count. I'm not like my friends. <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> I, I mean, I know the way men, it's, it's so strange because I do hear women, I have a lot of women friends and I hear the way they talk about men and what men are attracted to. And I've, I've just never found that to be the case with mm. guys. I mean, uh, granted, my friends might be a little more forward thinking, but nobody is uh, looking for some kind of uh, ideal, uh, anything. They like people who they get along well with and that what they like, what they, they like what they like. Yeah. And now it's getting to the point now more where... Uh, and, and the media may have something to do with this, where it's acceptable to be into bigger girls or things mm. like that. Maybe the media is playing. And a positive pornography order. has. I mean, people talk about pornography in such negative terms, but porn's played a massive role. Oh, absolutely. In that. When you suddenly have all different types of bodies up on websites, and you can choose, and you become, you get in taught that all of those are valid options, mm-hmm. and that's that. I think porn. I call it the democratization of the body, and it's a massive thing. We have far more body varieties in the porn industry than you'll ever see in mainstream film and TV. And so they should be learning from us. Even something that maybe started out on the website as like a fetish type of Mm -hmm. thing is then after exposure. Well, it it happens on Instagram too. I I was just saying this yesterday to my girlfriend. I said there used to be, and every, I think there's tons of guys in like middle school or high school or whatever. And that you would see there, there would be the pretty fat girl in class and you would like, you would have a crush on her and you'd say, oh man, she really is so pretty too. And you would kind of feel like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a good person that I could look beyond all that. I remember, <laughs> feel, I mean, I really remember thinking that in my head, in my heart or whatever. But now you'll see the same type of girl on Instagram. I'll be, look at that pretty girl. I know she's big, but she's really pretty. And you'll click on her thing and she has a hundred and eighty thousand followers and i'm like god damn it this whole time i thought i was a good person <laughs> no we that's just like so we just like what we yeah. like but patting that's what... yourself on the back Nobody yeah else yeah does. i want to be like oh how noble of me and it's like oh no we, we like to f- fuck beautiful bigger girls it's it's in us we just 
whatever we think we're allowed to like. Mm. I mean, and however fucked up that is. But that, that sort of discussion about like how men have more variety, uh, regardless of whether they're patting themselves on the back <laughs> or not, we'll not get into that. But That's um, so funny. But, but that is something. Don't you, you see what I'm saying? We need to have more conversation between men and women because yeah. I think if men were talking more on that subject, um, I think women would would be doing, uh, you know, would do themselves massive favors i think you know we we are so hard on ourselves and actually women need to be talking to men directly about that ah i hate to interrupt this amazing conversation but i have a fantastic deal from one of our amazing sponsors so guys you know how when you have a great glass of wine it enhances the moment well a company called wink understands this and so they offer exceptional wines from around the world so you can have more of these kind of moments I tried it. You need to try it. It's very simple because you go to trywink.com. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. You take a brief palette profile quiz. Ooh, like the sound of that. I did it. They recommended a bunch of distinct, interesting, customized, awesome wines just for me. And then they shipped them to me and I got a notice that they're on the way Today, I am so excited to try these five different kinds. You guys should try them too, because right now, Wink is offering Reality Bites listeners $20 off your first order. All you have to do is go to trywink.com slash reality. They'll even cover the cost of shipping. You guys, major deal alert. That's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash reality to get $20 off your first order plus complimentary shipping. Ugh, you gotta do this. Trywink.com slash reality. Do it! And now back to this fascinating conversation. It does feel like a large part of female beauty standards is performing for other women. Well, I, I think it is that, and I think it's an idealized... I mean, this is the thing, right? Do you remember who was uh, Lena Dun- Dunham? Or mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, she was on, I can't remember, was it Vogue? Vogue, Vogue front that cover. That was huge. And there yeah. was a massive thing about, you airbrushed her and stuff like this. And she came out and said, actually, I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, this is the thing. This is the thing. I, you know, I would love the idea that we could all equally look at different body types and just all of us have, you know, a, an open mind to that. But I think that we ha- are individually really tied to wanting to see this ideal idealized version of ourselves so Uh. if i were to do vogue and stuff and you can call that internalized sexism but i'd want to be airbrushed so i looked amazing and this is this is terrible but but i all we see that as a problem and it is a problem because women are you know given less power in society because of the way they look so there's a massive and of course it goes through race and it goes through all sorts of you know bodily shapes and all sorts of stuff um but so that it should be politicized that's right but when we do that we kind of divorce that form of aesthetics from any other type of aesthetics like for instance we we don't have a problem saying that you know a, a, a sort of country scene with a lake and you know cascading water is more beautiful than a supermarket car park right we have a, a car yeah uh-huh. car, we have no um problem saying that because there isn't a kind of political kind of need to we can have hierarchies so 
are we do we have hierarchies kind of unconsciously or even biologically like we you know they can say that we like people with more symmetric faces and stuff like this um and is how do you sit that as so separate from the rest of aesthetics when we actually yes there's a massive a range of taste but there's a massive amount of agreement as well on what is beautiful that's so complicated yeah and i and i, I say that from someone who learned you know um, my first degree was in fine art film and video and we mm-hmm. were being taught about how to deconstruct um the hierarchy of taste which is really interesting if you take two objects one seen as kind of like you know a classic um uh, kind of modern sort of classic vase or something that's very tasteful and something I'd say I don't know crate and barrel or something where you know you've got a sort of trendy sort of thing and then you you put it next to a kind of like kitsch kind of like um figurine of Elvis or something like this you know we would sort of and then you were being taught in art school to to look at this sort of classic vase and compare and say okay so what what's different about them and what's similar and if they're probably made of the same material they probably cost as much they probably took as much care and time to make Uh they probably um um have a resale value the same so lots of things were objectively the same and then you actually kind of taught this is a sort of form of classism and this is a sort of a form of us thinking our taste is better and we all do that we all do that and art school any decent art school is about breaking that down and saying no i like there's no shop in on the high street that i won't go buy my clothes from i will go and look in a thrift store but i'll also go to the cheapest you know the cheapest place and the most expensive place if I can afford it I that's what the the mentality is of art school is they teach you to I can't walk past a skit without looking in it and thinking I might be a salvage something and and this kind of like thing is is not something when we we apply it to women and people we have a far less wide range and we don't have the language to talk about beauty like physical beauty and sometimes it seems like just in conversations that I've had with friends or like some women are very you know when they get called comedians when they get called up and it's like she's hilarious and uh smart and she's beautiful Mm -hmm. or whatever they like have a huge issue with that but then I don't know it seems like you should be able to knowledge beauty whatever wherever that Mm. exists on the spectrum it's just so such murky territory yeah let's talk about your work with pickup artists okay um yeah i interviewed 10 pickup artists uh seven pickup artist trainers um oh my god one from (laughs) australia one from um america rather uh, one woman and the rest were just men from england um, I went on a weekend that where they do these kind of like um, boot camps and, and stuff like this and watch what the hell You know about trained. this world at all? I, a little bit. I'm fascinated. Like I've I listened to a bunch of podcasts with Neil Strauss uh-huh. and wasn't he one of the... Yeah, he was one of the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by it and the, the like boot camp factor and the trainers. Like it, it all seems so absurd to me, but... Yeah. Well, what was interesting, it was lots of things. I mean, one, there's a um, range. There's kind of like uh, Neil Strauss in the game. He'll talk about the dark side of, and the light side. Neil Strauss is more the kind of light side. Um, and what are uh, those? What's the dark side? The dark that? side are people like, he's called Mystery, people like that who, who go and do a lot of things like neg- what's called negging. Uh-huh. So that would be putting a woman down without her knowing. 
So if it would lower your self-esteem and then they'd be able to go in there. It's called neuro-linguistic programming. Um, but it's this is the thing, it's very patchy. There's not a real science behind this. So when I first started think, going to interview, especially the American uh, trainer, who's the first one I did, I was kind of worried that he'd be able to sort of read my mind and stuff uh-huh. like this. And it's absolute crap, you know. They, they, really, <laughs> they really come... There are some skills that you definitely can do. But... Um, but the neg side and stuff like that, it starts to get uh, really kind of murky ethically, definitely. Uh, the one I, the boot camp I went on in the UK was actually really about shy men, all different aspects. You know, some are very young, some had just been divorced, we were in the 50s, 60s, and they just needed to get out there. And it actually really increased my confidence because I had to kind of um, go and watch it. And what they just basically do, they'll give you a couple of hours training and they go, right you're going out on Covent Garden Piazza right now and you are going to go and talk to 10 women <laughs> and you're going to get over rejection. And this is what they do. And it's actually a really useful skill anyway. And to the extent that um, the woman trainer that I spoke to um, was saying that she was having people her, her, being paid by their, uh, the, like the states to, to kind of like uh, increase their confidence just not to do a dating. Do you know what I mean? These oh, are people yeah. on kind of like medical needs for it and stuff and you do you go out and you have to go and talk and ask them what the time is or go and ask an absurd question and when you stand back and watch this happen that actually does really work you can actually get someone um to start talking to you and just sort of say some random thing can I just ask your opinion on this you know my best friend says so and so and I say this what do you think and you have to just think on your feet and learn to do this. And that really actually increases your confidence. And I would actually feel much more confident going up to a person in the street. I wouldn't have a problem with it now because of watching this. Uh-huh. So there's a side of that that I think a lot of men could actually really, or actually women too. Uh-huh. I think, you know, women should, but I went on a women version one and they they were telling women to how to get the man over to them to well, they sit down and get a man over oh, it was so no. awfully you know <laughs> this is the thing it's all steeped in cherry picking of you know pseudoscience this neurolinguistic thing and this kind of very um essentialist idea of gender um so it was really unfortunate in lots of ways but in some ways it was really interesting like this confidence thing i think we could all do with that yeah like that ability to go up and talk to anybody um, but the negging thing is like, if I went, you know, if I was talking to a woman or anyone really at a bar, if I went up and stood next to her and, and, and if I wanted to, because um, you've got to remember the aim is to get them to kind of give you their telephone number, which is another thing. Telephone numbers are the thing they count themselves by, not actually sex. Lots of women give out telephone numbers. And as you know, we, we give out fake telephone numbers, yes, don't yeah. we? So it doesn't really, really mean that much. You can give a t- number out to just go, yeah, bye. But also you don't need to pick up the phone. Even you can decide later and stuff. So it's not a real count on how successful a man is. Once you've gone to bed with someone, it's interesting, I found, that they didn't have that. Considering they talked all the time about going uh-huh. to bed with stuff, they actually didn't give each other sex advice or clothing and stuff like this was really dodgy you know an insecure area for them lots of things the female gaze and the looking at the men i i one of the guys when i was um in the boot camp turned around to me one of the the 
the people, the students, and said to me, so, so what do you think of our clothes or what we're wearing today? And the guy that was teaching went, oh, no, no, okay, okay, so, no, 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 no. and he took it back, right? And it was really interesting. And I talk about how men don't acknowledge the female gaze. They will talk about, and if you look at men's magazines, uh, I don't, you get men's health over here, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Max, yeah. Uh, Maxim, yeah, is yeah. those count? GQ, yeah, a, a, and, and all the, the, they'll talk about get a six pack in one month, get this, do your biceps, and they, they turn the body into a project that men can control and manage. And then they um, they don't they just don't talk about the female gaze like they don't have women in their game. Oh, I'll tell you what I like about men. This is another from the other side. So men need to be listening to what women actually like because uh. there's this projection on especially on since metrosexuality of this kind of ideal, um, which is really unfortunate because you now if you go um, in shops and you see uh, clothes for young boys for you know uh, outfits superman outfits they'll have like re- you know six pack okay. padded things put in into them and that's really unhelpful for men like women have had to deal with this kind of stereotypes the way forward is not to do it oh, for yeah. young boys It'll either fuck you up. <laughs> it will fu- yeah it will fuck you up so we have this concern about the body but it's never talking about the female gaze like that is just oh no 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 I do this for myself I do this for myself all the time and that's kind of in not what they say a lot of what I looked at is kind of what they avoid saying and how you can look at the language and see kind of the big holes and that was one of the big holes and it's interesting that so those are their insecurities yeah are those the big holes but the thing is the way that men deal with their securities is insecurities is to rely on these um, historically proven masculine what they call hegemonic masculinity which is the kind of stronger alpha kind of male ways which is kind of like um either to be a rebel, to be a judge, to be a a caretaker, lots of these kind of roles that men are kind of like positive masculine roles. Uh Um, And they'll kind of jump to those to describe it. So for instance, with the body, they're in control of their project. Yeah. So that's how they manage talking about not feeling attractive. They're in control of their project. Well, if you look at the way women... Uh, kind of discussed about yeah there is kind of like lose eight pounds in 10 weeks and stuff like this but it is always kind of in this context of you're pretty shit aren't you so you need to you need to you you need to feel better about yourself by making other people like you and And you're definitely allowed to acknowledge like uh, oh I feel like my thighs are flabby or you know my tummy makes me feel uh insecure or whatever yes. whereas you're saying as and your a man, emotions I really hate my belly and I really yeah. hate this and it makes me feel sad and stuff like this there's much more scope but um for men they will jump to these kind of like they'll either be a judge or stuff like this and the classic example I interviewed this one guy about and he was talking about his first experience ever going to a lap dancing club mm. so I talked about that that how they experience and I, I asked him about the power hierarchy who um, who's in charge of the lap dancing situation and the men always thought either the owner of the club or the women were not the men and this was really interesting because again that doesn't fit in with a feminist film theory kind of thing but this one guy he's, he's sitting there and he's talking in current terms so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this woman and she's everything I've, I ever wanted and stuff like this he's all about short sentences and he's all talking about he's reliving this experience right um, talking about it and then um, and then suddenly the song ends and she gets up and she says thanks very much goodbye and he's affronted by it 
right? He he kind of thinks he's he thinks this is for real, you know, on some level. He thinks uh-huh. she's kind of like talked to him for 20 minutes to get him to get, pay for a dance. And then she's too abruptly, quote unquote, moved on and gone to somebody else, right? And then suddenly he goes, and suddenly I was really aware of the... Um, capitalist side of this and I and then he starts saying and I don't think I should be part of this Ah. I don't think I should be adding to this terrible system and then he starts bringing in feminism so he becomes the judge he becomes the moral moral agent at first (laughs) and then he starts bringing a judge saying um I don't think women should be doing this and then he he brings in this female friend um and he said, oh, and once I had this friend and she was all sold on this female empowerment thing of stripping. And I and I just said to her, you're just taking your clothes off for money and showing people your pussy or something like this. So he kind of, and you saw this arc go through. It's in my book, Rethinking Misogyny. You see this arc uh-huh. where he's, he the power's there and he's enjoying it. But as soon as this turns, he looks for somebody else to blame. And he can't sit there and go, yeah, I feel a bit foolish yeah. or I miss her. I wish she really liked me and and I feel insecure about that. He's not that space. He's a gap. It's a, you know, and um, he goes off and he goes immediately to find someone to blame. So this is why we need to be talking to men about their concerns, because this is what's happening. And this is what is going to be the key to sorting out gender equality, as far as I'm concerned, because if you start kind of like ignoring men, that, that gap's always going to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, another section in your, your book is about, um, men making the first men's thoughts on dating, like making the first move, Mm. um, things like monogamy. I'm curious about how, uh, as there's more equality in jobs and financial situations, how they feel about paying for things or, uh, those kind of like traditional dating rules we've had yeah I mean there was some frustration at that for sure like this you know that if women are it was split it was very mixed that I really wouldn't say that it came down on one one area and not the other but I've always thought that's a bit hypocritical that women you know we live in a world where women earn enough to be able to pay half usually uh-huh. um and yet expect this kind of old-fashioned thing I, I I don't have much time for that myself but I know lots of women kind of like that but um there was a, it certainly within the pickup artistry community was a lot of frustration with that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like when I was interviewing certainly one guy um, who was just a, a student, um, he made a big deal out of me buying him loads of coffees and stuff like this. And <laughs> it was just like that was important to him. I was like, fine, I get the interview. I didn't care. Um, but, um, but it was interesting to see how and they, they say, like, don't buy the woman drink. Do not buy the woman a drink. Oh, really? The, yeah. I would think it would be the opposite. No, because you're trying to with the with the pickup artist stuff. They're trying to keep the power. Yeah. So when you're uh, you're you're opening yourself up to hurt to be hurt a when you buy them a drink and also to be taken advantage of and that's where a lot of their thing is is I'm tired of women taking advantage of me like this and getting free stuff off of me. That's like a men's rights thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they go in and they actually don't drink themselves. And one of the things they say is that you will be better at the game by not drinking. So they'll go in and. Um, get some water and sit there at the bar just drinking water and occasionally tip. I remember one of them saying, well, you should occasionally tip. And I thought, well, there's a power imbalance because if you weren't behind the bar, you wouldn't be getting a dollar a fucking glass of water, that's for sure. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so that's part of it. Um, and I don't, you know, 
they talk in the men's rights uh, situation about women. There's been a lot of talk about women being sex objects uh-huh. and, uh, you know, for men's gain and stuff like that. And they're saying, well, the trouble is with the men's rights activists, they're not saying, I want to add to the debate. They're, they're kind of having a go at feminists by saying, you talk about equality, gender equality, but actually you only focus on women. And then they go, the men's rights only focus on men. Uh-huh. So they're a hypocrite, right? Um, and that's the trouble. They want to start talking about men as success objects. And actually, I think that's a valid point. I think we do uh, want men to have money and to have success in ways that we don't expect that as much from women. I know women have problems with being successful and finding a good man, uh, you know, a respectful man. So it kind of it's it's a mixed picture. Uh-huh. Um, but so I think it's think a fair women, point. So you're saying you think women fetishize success as much as men may fetishize beauty? I, w- I wouldn't go as far as say as much. I don't know how qualitatively uh, or quantitatively how you would put those two together. But I do think it's an aspect of it that I think we do sort of go, oh, so what does he do? Uh-huh. A bit more oh, than we do. I definitely think that's true. Of women. And, and it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of men's rights in um, India, for instance. And that's one of their main issues is because they have the dowry. It's supposed to be illegal, but it's, it's still happening and stuff uh-huh. like this. So it's very apparent for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, I don't disagree that that's wrong, but don't, you can't be saying, oh, we don't treat you as sex object. You've got to fess up. Both sides have got to fess up to both sides of doing. And this is why we need to have this conversation and be a little bit more honest with it. Especially as women do want men to have hegemonic masculine harder traits. You know, we, we sometimes want them, we fancy, we like, you know, we look at men in cinemas and stuff and the ones that get light usually are kind of have this very sort of traditional masculine thing and um men see that and then they go well i don't feel like i've matched that either um Mm. we we kind of living this is why i say smoke and mirrors between men and women we kind of like we have all these images Uh of what we we aspire like brad pitt and you know angelina jolie even you know with these these aspirational figures and yet we don't actually choose that to marry Right, and settle down with. Oh, totally. So we're we're constantly negating our own kind of logic. There is no logic to it. And we, we're constantly... So, so we kind of need to just, like, fill in the gaps and have more conversations, I think. Uh, Courtney mentioned monogamy. I do think we're at a time right now because of, uh, because of uh, so much equality and, and things like that, that um, men are starting to be more open to, to women uh, being sexual beings outside of whatever they have going on. I, I do think it's big. How do you feel about monogamy and what's happening currently with the, the debate? Well, it's one of the very strong sort of tenets of kind of heteronormativity. Like, you know, this this society that we have that, you know, historically gay people were able to look at kind of because they were excluded. They were able to look at the, the majority of us, the heterosexual lot and just go, you're totally hypocritical. You know, you believe very strongly in monogamy and yet you're shagging behind each other's backs all the time. Uh-huh. You know, um, you, you talk about marriage and, you know, how great it is. And yet you're often very unhappy. And, you know, your chil- you, you say you must have children and yet loads of you are bringing up kids badly because you don't actually really want them and stuff like this. And so gay people had what, what they call kind of an epistemological advantage, which is where queer theory comes in and, and you get people who, like Peter Tatchell and that, who are actually quite anti-gay marriage because they're saying we shouldn't be 
going and you know amalgamating um assimilating rather um the, these mistakes we uh-huh. should actually be trying to change it and getting people the heterosexual heteronormative world to change like us like we you know we are much more honest about having sort of multiple partners and stuff like this but well, there view- are a lot of monogamous gay couples but this is the thing so um you you're not delineated just because your sexuality and stuff like this it's an individual choice yes. i choose my husband and i choose monogamy yeah but i'm a, I'm, I'm a bisexual person uh-huh. and i got and this is the thing like what is sex what is sexuality i got a lot of my um sexuality especially my sort of lesbian side and bisexual side through filmmaking uh-huh. um i made a lot more films than i had lesbian experiences um yeah. so or what you call them bisexual experiences but um and stuff like this so it's 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 a murky picture i don't know i think people are getting more i mean i'm old enough right to remember um i, I remember people who kind of really looked down on people marrying twice uh-huh. right in the 80s that was seen as a real failure to to go on and have a second marriage when i um grew up in my primary school years I didn't I had one friend whose parents were divorced. The rest were completely married all their time. And oh right, that's only up until I was eleven or something. Uh-huh. So sort of eighty three. Um, but but that kind of whole debate that seems so passe now. I mean, at least in England and from what I see in you know living in California, we really don't kind of have a real issue with people having more than one marriage. And if they if they start having like three, four, five, and we start going, mate, you need you know you need to work this one out. <laughs> just but, date, man. Just date. Yeah. Either just like say this is not for you, or you need to work out what it is. If this is your main aim, just work something out. And I think we're kind of getting a bit more like that with polyamory. Amory and and stuff and I think we will get more open to kind of those uh we're getting a few legal situations aren't aren't we where uh, people are allowed to kind of marry I think there was one in the paper this week I can't remember where it was but for the first I think it was in the states there was one state that was saying you know three people were able to get married oh interesting I'm, I'm sure it was but um we are getting more open to that and and I think just in in general, I guess we will more so. I mean, there's a lot of sort of monogamy light happening. Well, <laughs> or serial you know. monogamy, which was always my thing. I was I was always sort of fairly monogamous, but I just never, you know, when things got difficult, I just kind of left and went with someone else, you know. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the idea of even uh, polyamory, and all, there's so many sub areas and things. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to what you're originally saying this whole time is that men and women need to talk. I came out of a polyamorous open marriage. But there's a lot of things that I know that I was doing wrong and that I probably wouldn't want to do again. But with my current girlfriend, um, we just talk about so we talk about it all the time. And I'm grateful for that, by the way, that she, that she allows me to even talk about it. But then we've we've come to places where she's like, you know, what? I really don't care about that thing. Just don't be romantic. There's different little things like that where we're just tearing it apart. But like... Uh, even talking about it makes me feel so free that I don't mm. even really care about it. It's just, it's nice to be seen and to mm. be heard. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Um, I have so many questions for you now, Steve. But this has got to be, this has got to be winding down. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little, I, I have a, I have an a question about, these things. about uh, how, how at the beginning we talked about homosexuality related to, uh, the masculinities. So I wanted to delve into a little of your studies on that. Well, just um, there's sort of this theory. Um, 
about how homo hysteria, the fear of someone calling you as a man gay, uh-huh. um, has diminished since the the end of the AIDS crisis. And the the thing is that the way that gender we're also absolutely interlinked. We can't really separate, and in, we're interlinked as men and women, but also in sexuality and gender and biology as well. Um, you know that, that we're learning much more about sort of intersex, and like one in a hundred people are intersex. And most of those people won't even know it. There was a study. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a study done. It was in um, which scientific magazine? I, I, it's on my. I did a blog piece on my website. Um, and it's uh, and the, and they, you know, there was a situation where this Australian woman who was forty two was on her third child and because she'd had a child over 40 they sent her away to check for down syndrome and she had a, a chromosomes checked and it came back and they said your child's fine but technically you're a man <laughs> and you'd what? think three times she said this is her third kid that would be proof enough that you're a woman right and this other example um was um this uh gent old guy uh in his 70s, had had his um, stomach, you know, done a, um, some sort of stomach operation, opened it up and he had a full set of womb and, and ovaries in there. And, and really, we don't know how many of us are intersex and stuff like this. So there's a load of frontiers that we need to go through that, can you imagine if everyone started to go, oh, you know, because you can have what's called mosaicism, which is where you have certain areas of your body have, have like... Um, male sections and some are female and stuff oh. like this so we so biologically we're a massive map and it's more of a spectrum than a, a binary as we see it and yeah. but the actual kind of like um the visibly um sort of intersex those with visible genital um uh both sets are very rare that's something you know that's that's um hermaphroditism is true mm-hmm. pure is very uh rare but everything else is, and you know, and the amount of people that are coming out of sort of transgender, this whole thing, this discussion is coming out that is changing absolutely everything. And in sexuality and gender, you can't separate them. Um, like for instance, transgender person, I've interviewed transgender people and, um, a, and a number of them sort of said, well, at first I came out as gay. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. hear about young transgender people, like kids going, I am definitely the opposite sex, you know, um, and they can have blockers on their hormones and stuff like this. But there's a lot of people that I've spoken to who weren't kind of didn't and actually didn't have this inner knowledge of it. were being told by other people, you you don't fit in. You're not, you know, you, you might feel kind of like, like you do fit in, but actually it, the, the the thing comes from outside, the, the prods, if you like. Um, but when I was talking to sort of transgender people at first, um, they'd go, oh, so I came out as gay because I fancied, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm a man and then I fancied men. So I came out as gay. Then I lived like that for about five years and I thought, this isn't it. This mm-hmm. isn't n- enough. And so they transition into a, into a woman's body and then they become heterosexual again. So just that kind of link yeah. um, between sort of that sort of thing. You can see how the sexuality and the gender are kind of like connected completely. And there's a lot of like massive discussions around these areas and no one entirely agrees. But there's a lot going on. And we're set, I, I talk about how at the moment we're living in a second 60s because we are learning, especially with, with all sorts of... Um, 
with uh, class, race, gender, sexuality. Even open relationships like yeah. we were talking about. And it doesn't make things extinct uh, that are on either side of the spectrum, I don't think. Just like, I don't think marriage is going to totally go away. No. But exploring just, all the... Everything's on the table. Yeah. yeah. Everything's on the table in terms of values and, and what's acceptable. So, yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Yeah, I think it's exciting times to live in. Really fascinating. I say this to my students. I say, you're so lucky. Because I especially... And I just to sort of mention this before um, we end or anything, is is I, as a filmmaker, in the 90s, when I so I graduated in 98, the dream of having, for instance... Um, a uh, female Ghostbusters or stuff like this. The, stu- oh, yeah. the things that are happening within representation, I, I either thought it was going to happen really quickly or I thought it would never happen. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's actually physically happening now, and we're actually seeing, and I actually think Ghostbusters 2 is better than the first one. Yeah, and stuff like yes. This. And loads of this stuff. These are not weak intimida- uh, uh, imitations. These are uh, amazing, amazing, strong pieces of work that actually stand up on their own. And... Um, that, and, I, and I just look around at all the female protagonists and it's such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And I think the internet has kind of helped us all to get much more kind of um, democratic about representation. Clearly there are class and racial and of gender stuff still massively skewing things, but we are getting more freedoms and it's fantastic to see um, that you can even dream of having sort of, you know, filling a cinema full of stuff that's written for women. It's crazy how powerful it is too. Mm. Like I went to see, uh, Wonder Woman, uh, last weekend and, you know, I, I, I went because I wanted to see it because it's a female superhero, but sitting in the seat, I could feel how, rare it was and it almost made me cry Mm. i was sitting there just like i never saw this when i was a kid it matters isn't it a lot it's huge it really matters to see yourself up on the screen it's what people of color are saying all the time and you've got way better representation on race in america than england Uh oh my giddy aunt you've no idea how white the television is in england oh yeah and films um, so it's way better here, but it's nowhere near enough. But just to see that, just to see uh, represent, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, as they say. And uh-huh. for women, that I just, I think it's so incredibly important. Yeah, and with the presidential stuff too, like yeah. s- seeing a, a black man and then seeing a woman get so close, it's just been, yeah. it's, it's a cool time. I mean, I one of, one of my earliest memories about... Um, gender or anything is seeing Margaret Thatcher when I was seven years old in 79 seeing her campaigns become prime minister and my family and myself have never been conservative right Uh we're not not right wing but I just I'd be going I want Thatcher to win and my mum would go no you don't love (laughs) 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 you don't understand it and I was going but a woman's gonna win and you know from and, and when she won it was massive for me because if there was a woman at the top of the country anything was possible and I really think that, you know, even Clinton going, getting so near and it's so tragic and so fascinating that her, you know, her opposite was such a misogynist. Oh, I so, know. Such an, you know, no, not a sort of, you know, soft kind of misogyny, just an outright misogynist. That it is really, it's, you know, it's theatre. It's, it's just incredible to sit back and, and watch what's going on now. I mean, in England as well. I mean, the, the political climate, this is it, the second 60s, this is happening in real time now. And we are really, in 10 years time, it's going to be a lot more boring. So I suggest people, 
<laughs> sit back, you know, have a look at what's happening and really soak it in because this is happening. That's so rad. So, um, what did you do? Your a lot of your pornography work and then go on to academia. Was that the order of? Yeah, I finished doing. I haven't shot anything since I think two thousand and eight, and then I did. Um, I was distributing other women. I had a, a, t- a series called Women Love Porn. Um, so I did that, and then I did because um, the, the market fell out. Everyone did copyright theft, and oh, overnight I bet. from two thousand and seven to two thousand and eight. My, my income dropped by 80%. Ooh. It was just obliterated everything. And uh, I had a company, Trace Online, and, and it was just, it was huge, hundreds of thousands of Stop dollars. stealing content. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, people don't want to hear this, but, you know, I could have put a lot of women and queer people on that, having that. I could have started up a real kind of movement in porn, but because I wasn't getting that money, it just was a no starter. So I got out. Totally. I got out of the industry and um, I still advocate for it. I still get interviewed on it. Um, and then I did my PhD in 2010 as retraining and I, you know, did my book Rethinking Misogyny came out 2014 and yeah, now I teach a bit and, and, you know, continue to sort of write and stuff. Yeah. Well, I love it. Where can people follow you and, and stay up to date on your okay, work? Okay. My blog site is AnnaArrowsmith.com. A-R-R-O-W-S-M-I-T-H. That is not the band. And, um, <laughs> I know. The first time I looked you up, I was like, nope, not that one. <laughs> I've never actually looked up Anna Aerosmith. I wonder if some people have set some stuff up in my name. Um <laughs> But, um, yeah, or there's Anna Spann's diary. So my porn, nom de porn was Anna Spann, S-P-A-N. So it's annaspannsdiary.com, annaarrowsmith.com. The book is Rethinking Misogyny, Men's it, Perceptions of Female Power and Dating Relationships. Oh, and I, you know, I run a, a weconsent.org, which is a website of information regarding people in sec- different sex industries as well. You know, uh, sex work, porn work, lap dancing, everything. So awesome. Kind of and you're on Twitter at AnnaArrowsmith.com. Uh, oh, Anna Arrowsmith, yeah. Yeah. Steve, where are you? Oh, you can find me at Big Hearn on Twitter and Hernia on Instagram. That's a real hot Instagram. Yeah. That's oh, like... I'm on Instagram as well, Anna Arrowsmith as well. But it's mostly pictures of like my actual life. So it's <laughs> <laughs> less political. <laughs> Amazing. Follow the show, you guys, at Reality Bites Pod. Send us your sex, love, and dating questions to realitybytespod at gmail.com. And uh, join us again next time. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's really good fun. Bye.